Welcome to Mindful Social, the show that intersects mindfulness and emotional intelligence with the hectic online world we live in today. Welcome everybody to Mindful Social. This week, I'm so excited to have Emmanuel Joseph, PhD, my very good friend, to join us and talk a little bit about compassion. And he is a former cancer scientist. He's author of several books. And his experiences running in an in-home senior care agency really brought him to witness firsthand the need for deeper understanding of empathy and compassion as a fundamental tool for living in this world and also in the workplace. So he's Chief Compassion Officer at CompassionLeaders.com. And gosh, he's a really great guy. Oh, thank you, Janet. So are you. And it's really a pleasure and an honor to be here with you today. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. You know, we were just chatting a little bit before the show started about all the different ways that compassion applies to our lives and how we often don't apply it to ourselves. So maybe let's just start there. What does self-compassion look like and why do we need it? Why do we care? So uh, self-compassion, I think, is best described by Dr. Kristen Neff, uh, who says, Self-compassion is just learning to be a good friend to yourself. It's something that we often forget. Uh, we kind of have, uh, we grow up in this mindset where we are expected to be nice to the world outside. Our interactions with people outside must be at a certain quality of kindness and compassion. But we are not taught that we can be kind to ourselves and that we should be kind to ourselves. Um, and in fact, we feel guilty if we are kind to ourselves. Um, and, and so the reality, though, is unless we can be kind to ourselves, unless we can give ourselves that tenderness and care uh, that we expect to give to others, unless we have it ourselves, we cannot give it to others. I, I think the uh, fantastic analogy is the oxygen masks that drop from airplanes, right? They say, sure. even if there's a baby next to you, put it on yourself first before you offer it to the baby because your brain becomes adult without the oxygen. And what can you give if you don't have it? So self-compassion is, 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 I think, in my understanding of life, um, is the foundational principle for any other act of compassion that you can give. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I absolutely agree. And it, then when we take that, though, there are a lot of people who think of compassion as perhaps not kind. Um, or that being kind to themselves is a weakness. How do you feel about that? You know, that's a very interesting uh, question because you know, my work uh, with compassion leaders is uh, talking to leadership, talking to people in companies about how they can create a culture of compassion. And a resistance that I get from, uh, from people, especially who are in leadership positions is, uh, compassion is weakness. I cannot afford that in my workplace. And my answer to that is that's the absolute untruth. So com compassion actually is fierce. It is a quality. I, uh, in, a, in a very simple, simplistic way of putting it, compassion is the capacity to do the right thing. And mm. wisdom is knowing what that right thing is. 
So I, I think that's so fundamental. Let me repeat that again. Compassion is doing the right thing. And uh, wisdom is knowing what that right thing is. It's as simple as that. And it, to do the right thing is, is a very courageous act. Oftentimes, it involves standing up to popular opinion. It's, it involves standing up to people who are your friends and your allies because that's not the right thing to do. Or sometimes it's being vulnerable and saying, you know what, I made a mistake. Sometimes it's saying it doesn't matter what color of our, is our skin and our race and what languages we speak. It's just us, one humanity, and being bold enough to acknowledge that in a group. And it's being bold enough to provide psychological cover for, our, uh, for the reports that we have. Um, so I think compassion is the opposite of weakness. Compassion is courage with wisdom. Hmm, that's beautiful. Now, you say that it's very simple, but it sounds very complex. Where do we start? How do we start practicing compassion? And do we start with others or with ourselves? We definitely start with ourselves, but let me um, share this thought with you. See, you're right. I mean, we are... Uh, we cannot, I mean, I cannot walk into a gym without having done an, any exercise for uh, forever and lift a hundred pound weight, right? Uh, it comes with practice. I start with 30 pounds and I eventually climb up the ladder and then it becomes easier for me to climb that hundred pound or to lift that hundred pound, hundred pound weight. I think the same is true with compassion because compassion is a muscle. It's uh, it comes with practice. It comes with knowing that we can make certain choices. It comes with us giving ourselves permissions to be and act in a certain way. And most of us have that lemming mindset where, you know, everybody is discompassionate. Let me also be in that discompassionate mode. Um, but I think uh, to be compassionate starts with awareness that you have a choice, that every moment offers a choice to act in a way that creates uh, the best outcomes for yourself and for the world around you. Uh, so I have this little technique that I, uh, that I teach people um, uh, to develop that mu muscle, yeah, to develop that compassion muscle. I call it the one, two, three technique. Mm -hmm. um, the first thing is, uh, uh, if you are walking into a situation, let's say, you know, walking into an office, office space, you're going to have a meeting with your manager, and you know, it could be a difficult conversation. First thing is you ground yourself, take in a deep breath, pause, just observe. The breath is a beautiful gift. It's a fantastic grounding space. And as you breathe, as you settle in, you become aware of the expanse that is available for you inside. And the second step is use that space to practice gratitude. Just a quick thought of gratitude. And one of the things about gratitude is you cannot say, I should feel grateful or I must feel grateful. It's more of, you know, what if I didn't have what I have? Or how many muscles does it take for me to actually move my hand? And what a wonderful blessing that is. Or just observing what kind of people I'm surrounded with or noticing, for example, here I am in the Bay Area, how many people in the world are blessed to live in this climate? So just that moment of pure gratitude saying, I don't deserve this, I'm not entitled to this, but I still have it, so it's wonderful. Uh, what this does is it puts us in a state of mind where we are more receptive 
to practicing compassion. Gratitude is a beautiful bowl for holding compassion. And that takes us to step number three. So you're familiar with the metta practice, right? Loving kindness practice. So metta meditation is basically recognizing our uh, unconditional capacity for uh, love for ourselves and for the world around us in ever-expanding layers, like, a, like the shells of an onion. So, but we, let's, not, let's not worry about doing that 20-minute session while stepping into an office meeting. But all, that, all we need is that one moment of you know, sincerely wishing. All of us are desiring for happiness and love. All of us, irrespective of our perspectives, what angle we come from, what objectives we come into, the, into this meeting. It doesn't matter. All of us deserve to be happy and loved. So uh, may we all be happy. May we all experience love. May we all be at ease. May we all be free from anxiety. Simple thoughts. So one, two, and three. To ground yourself with the breath, to step into gratitude, and as that bowl is created, practice a moment of loving kindness. Mm. It's as simple as that. And I think... Try to, as you try doing this, as you keep on doing this over time, you begin to automatically uh, prime yourself to react with compassion or better still, be proactive with compassion rather than be reactive. Um, and that's how compassion is built in small steps from the 20 pound up to the 100 pound until you are able to, you know, you know even in your most agitated state, uh, not react but give the people the benefit of the doubt and say, you know, perhaps, perhaps they are having a challenging day. Even if this person cut across my, my car and, and instead of honking, which I would have done otherwise, even though I'm stressed, I feel like I can give them the benefit of the doubt because I'm constantly thinking about my own capacity for compassion. Yeah, and the, I, I love that practice. And it's not something that you have to take a long time to do. You can do that when you've trained yourself to take the breath, accept gratitude, and have compassion, you can do that in a split second with exactly. practice. Exactly. And doesn't it also, at least I find, that sometimes if I'm going into a meeting and I'm going to be stressed, or maybe I'm going to be dealing with someone I know is going to be difficult to work with, going in with that compassionate approach changes the atmosphere in the room even though it's not something that I control, the atmosphere in the room, it still does change everyone in the room and make them more receptive to whatever's gonna happen next. Do oh, you believe that? Absolutely, absolutely. I think when you are compassionate, I think of this poem by, is that Marianne Wilkinson? I'm not sure. It says, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate, our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light and our darkness that most, not it is our light, not our darkness that most frightens us. And, it, and there's a line there that says, uh, and as we uh, let our own light shine, we give others unconsciously the permission to do the same. Something mm -hmm. to that effect. So I think as we are compassionate, we give our others the permission to be compassionate as well. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah, it's just opening the door, isn't it? Absolutely. I think we are all, most of us are naturally compassionate. It's just that 
we are uh, all lemmings in some way, right? I mean, I don't even know if that lemming story is true, but you know that they say when lemmings uh, mass, uh, they commit mass suicides by jumping off cliffs. Uh, and there was a BBC documentary about it like many, many years ago. Um, and, and they say, because one lemming jumps, everything else wants to jump in as well. So, so we are kind of culturally in that space. If one of us is in that space of, you know, or, or actually the majority of us are in that space of saying, you know, what we need to be um, very tough in workplaces. We need to put on this, uh, this very defensive mode as I walk into my workplace. I cannot carry my real character or my personality into the workplace. And people who go in want to become a part of that culture. They don't want to feel left out. So they also start um, imitating that behavior. Mm -hmm. And so if the majority shifts towards compassion, then others are also going to shift into the compassion. I always see this when I go into organizations, I see this as a, as a bell curve, right? There's people who are already bought in, no matter what you do, they are compassionate. You're preaching to the core. There's a group of people who will just get up and walk away if you're going to tell them anything about compassion. I've had that happen too. But the majority of people are curious and they don't know. They're the undecided that's, you know, select, elect who the, uh, the, the president is going to be. So they are the people who are our uh, target uh, population because they can drive the culture of the company. But we need to slowly woo them into this idea that compassionate work cultures are good for business. It's good for them. It's good for everybody, 360 all around. Mm. In your experience as a coach, do you see that this kind of training, um, bringing compassion into the workplace, is that something that needs to be top down or bottom up? You know, uh, that's a very interesting question, but uh, any defined answers, uh, different organizations, the sizes of different organizations, uh, the the local culture of the organization, all of this going to play in deciding which model works best. But I like to believe in general that you need to have a both ways approach. So the leadership must be bought in to the idea that uh, they can create a culture, they can support a culture which is compassionate, which uh, promotes an environment where people can connect with each other and share with each other and feel psychologically safe with each other. They have to model that experience and they have to support that experience because culture is a, is a million different things. It's not just uh, what is written on the, on the website. It, it's, it's, it's people doing small things, how they talk, how they interact, smile at each other, how much uh, freedom they have in taking time off and working and taking care of their personal life. It's all, all of those things coming together in one place. I sometimes think of culture as um, if, you, if you point to a friend and say, this is his personality, you should be able to point to your company and say, this is my company's personality. That's the culture of the organization. But then again, if a leadership is, is saying, let's do this uh, and we want to model this and the people that are there are not bought in, and there's really nobody to lead. So I think they need to have the skills and they need to feel empowered and motivated to actually belong to an environment and all of the good things that we discussed. So when we go into an organization, what we need to do 
is create nodes of compassion. We need to create people, especially if it's a large organization, small organizations, it's kind of self-organizing. But when we step into a large organization, we need to kind of create that um, um, setting where people, some people in the organization who are culturally aware, become nodes of change. And then we also need to make sure that the leadership is fully bought into the idea and they support it in any which way possible. Knowing that all of this is going to be a win-win for themselves, for their customers, and for the business that they are doing. Yeah, and, and under, if the leadership understands the value proposition, then it's a lot easier for them to buy in. Um, and these nodes of compassion really kind of acted as a catalyst for the group, right? People start exactly. to collect around them, and as long as they are being true to who they are and expressing that compassion, I find that it's kind of viral in a way that you know people will gravitate towards someone who is compassionate and not see it as a weakness. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I think like you pointed out, it's, it's um, kindness, compassion. These are all contagions. They, uh, they are, uh, you know, I think there was some research done which shows that kindness uh, ripples, has a ripple effect three layers out. So mm. if I'm kind, you're kind, if you're kind to me and somebody who's watching this act of kindness, um, they will also feel inspired to be kind to somebody else. And that ripples forward and forward. So uh, the, the, the notes of compassion, it can be extraordinarily contagious, um, knowing that we are all aspiring at some level for our own happiness. And we know that our happiness depends on the environment that we live in and we work in. Mm. And we do need to understand that it's all in our best interests and the best interests of the company. That, uh, and, it, and it just feels good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. I love that. So one of the other things that we talked about briefly that I'm kind of fascinated with is the idea of as our businesses grow, as our corporate industries grow, there's so much more artificial intelligence in everything that we do, really, the way that we are perceived online, for example, the way that customer service bots interact. Can we talk a little bit about how are we going to teach AI to be compassionate? Is that even possible? Uh, so first off, I must admit that I am not a techie. However, uh, uh, as a consumer, my perspectives on artificial intelligence, uh, I'm happy to share my, my thoughts around that. Um, so you are absolutely right. We are living in an age where we are witnessing an incredible transformation. I think I heard somebody say that the uh, creation of artificial intelligence is uh, as significant as uh, the creation of fire itself. Um, uh, I think that was from the head of Google, uh, uh, Mr. Sundar Pichai. I'm not sure if that's the, that's the quote from him or, or someone else, so don't quote me on that. Um, but then I know there are people who have nightmare scenarios around the idea of artificial intelligence. Um, for example, um, Stephen Hawking, who passed away, um, said uh, AI in its uh, fullest form uh, could be the end of humanity. Um, and Elon Musk, 
um, uh, speaking at the South by Southwest uh, conference a few years ago, uh, also kind of opined on the same thing. He said, it's more powerful than any, any nuclear warhead that we have. Uh, and I think that points to you know, the power of what uh, AI can be. I'm not trying to point out, paint a very grim situation around uh, yeah. the fate of humanity as artificial intelligence becomes more and more a part of it. But um, when I think of kind AI, um, I think uh, you know, that this is the time that because we are seeing the birth of a giant and uh, we need to uh, tame the giant before it becomes too big for us to, to handle. Um, you know, they, there's a, they, they say that uh, when elephants are very small, when they capture them as babies, they tie a thread around their, or rope around their feet. Uh, and the elephant babies try to pull and pull, but the rope is too strong for them. And eventually they grow big enough that with a tug, they can break that rope, but they are so attuned to the idea that the rope is unbreakable, that they kind of uh, are still held back by the rope. Mm -hmm. um, that's probably not the best analogy for artificial intelligence by its own definition. It's, it can be um, uh, extraordinarily uh, powerful with its computing resources and such. Um, but that said, I think this is the right time for us to start thinking about uh, how we can implement certain rules and regulations around um, artificial intelligence. So for example, uh, when genetic engineering came up, uh, there was this fear, what if somebody takes a smallpox virus and engineers it and causes the end of humanity? Valid concerns. Uh, when cloning became a possibility, ethical concerns, what if we could clone human beings and then that would um, see a, a, a big ethical crisis in our, again, valid concerns. So a system of rules and regulations, not just uh, within the scientific community, but from uh, the global political will was also enforced on these, that you cannot do certain things, that you cannot clone a human being, that you cannot work with certain viruses. You need to put them away in a space where, where no one else is able to access it. All this stuff. Uh, AI, I think, is also in a place where we need to kind of um, put those places and regulations in, 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 in hand. Um, it's like the rope that we tie around the baby elephant at some level. Uh, I'm not saying that it's going to be controlled. In fact, Elon Musk said uh, in his speech that uh, AI is uncontrollable, uh, will not be controlled um, once it develops. Um, that might be true, might not be true. But the intelligence that we are talking about, the artificial intelligence that we are talking about is narrow artificial intelligence or ANI, right? Artificial narrow intelligence, which is you take one task and you're able to use enormous computing power to get uh, to dive deep in and in. Uh, that's how you have AlphaGo Zero, which has mastered thousands of years of knowledge of the Go game uh, in 40 days, right? So that's, that's the power or, of artificial intelligence. However, one thing that, um, one step about that is the artificial general intelligence where the machines are able to, the computers are able to take multinodal information and use that as to make human-like decisions. That is still science fiction for us. It's not, we are not close to it yet. We've been saying that it's coming, it's coming, it's around the corner. At least as of now, it's not happened. Uh, 
Now, the problem with that is it's a, it's a much bigger risk and reward system with artificial general intelligence. And then of course, there's the next projection, which is the artificial super intelligence, which is probably a very quick jump from artificial uh, general intelligence, which is to say you, the computer has, can now think like a human and it has the enormous computing power. Together, it can absorb all of humanity's learning and become much more powerful than any uh, force out there. So with all of those considerations placed out, I don't know if I'm stretching this too long, but mm -hmm. let me be very quick. But I'm saying that one thing that the computers do not have that we have is our connection to purpose, our connection to a bigger consciousness. I truly believe in this, that we are, uh, if our species has to survive, we need to become more conscious creatures. We need to step away from our current uh, mindset of, you know, let's rush into uh, what makes the most immediate sense. Let's all be greedy. Let's grab. Um, that's kind of setting us up for failure because what we actually need to be doing is stepping away and focusing on our strengths, not our weaknesses. And our strengths are, I believe, that we are all conscious creatures. This body, this intelligence is just a vessel for a deeper consciousness. And if that might sound woo-woo for a lot of my engineering friends, but that's okay. That's my truth. Um, I truly believe that we are bigger than our bodies and our intelligence. And we need to step into this era of tapping into our consciousness. And that is our biggest advantage uh, as we step into a world of artificial intelligence. Mm. Mm. You know, I, I think that a lot of it is to do with we're so busy running, we're so busy doing the things that we do and doing and doing and doing that we completely lose perspective. And that that conscious intelligence, that conscious choice to actually choose a perspective, to step back and get a new perspective completely changes the way that we run our lives. But in our culture, we're so busy being unconscious in how we do things that, and it's easier in some respects. It has a lot of um, side effects that we may or may not see, but it is easier or lazier, whichever you want to put it, <laughs> to be unconscious in how we do things. And as businesses are, are really going more and more towards being conscious businesses and understanding how they affect the well-being of the people that they're selling products to and having compassion for what those uh, consumers want, but also having compassion for their employees and really understanding kind of things from the big picture. And I think, I think I'm seeing that as a big change in the way that businesses are operating now. And it may be small as far as the perspective of numbers, but it's a huge change to see companies being conscious at all <laughs> absolutely absolutely i completely agree with you i mean think of linkedin linkedin has a conscious business academy that's part of the cultural framework uh, facebook has a compassion program that thinks actively about suicides that are you know thought about expressed through facebook and how to stop it um, salesforce has the one 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 program one percentage of our time one percentage of our profits one percentage of skills uh, I think, I hope I got that right. They all go for charity. So it's, it's kind of the conscious mindset is slowly setting in 
And I think we are looking at an era of positive change in some ways. So now it's a competition. Who gets there first? Is it us or does our greed get there first? So I don't know. It's an answer that we're going to wait for. Well, I wonder then if there's some way that we could um, use AI to actually insert that as something that, you know, the corporate greed would move towards, you know, that they would recognize that as a compassionate company, for example, um, millennials now prefer to work for a company that has some moral standing that they respect. So when we start to see hiring practices changing to suit that, in some ways we're kind of gaming the corporate systems to make them more conscious. Yeah, no, I think that's a fantastic point. And, and you're right. I mean, it cannot be mandated. It has to be cajoled. Uh, we need to kind of give incent incentivize compassion in the workplace. In fact, uh, again, from my naive consumer stand uh, standpoint of um, AI, I, I have this ideas about um, how you can create certain codes that you can mandate into the uh, into the creation of AI itself and and incentivize that at, at that la layer of uh, implementation. So there's there's a bunch of things that has to, but it has to ultimately goes with profits. It has to go, it goes with political will. It goes with popularity. Um, anything that, uh, you know, the, the media picks up and says it's, it's great, we, let's all do this. And, and then everybody jumps into the bandwagon. Uh, but let's jump into a good bandwagon instead of the bad, bad bandwagon. I think that's the no, best we can do at this point. <laughs> yeah. So let me ask you then, where do you see this going? Let's say, let's go out 10 years from now. Do you think we'll see a significant change in corporate culture, not just towards um, compassion as one facet of that, but a little bit more conscious business and mindfulness incorporated into corporate life? I think that shift is already happening. See, I think about 10, 12 years ago, the idea of discussing mindfulness in workplaces or teaching mindfulness in workplaces would have been kind of a little off. Uh, but today, 22% of companies in the US have mindfulness practices in some level. Um, and I know there's not many companies talking about compassion. I know we are kind of, um, we feel alienated when I, when I, when we go out and talk to companies and say, we want to create a culturally compassionate, a cu compassionate culture in your workplace. And people kind of look at me like, why? And, but I'm selling it 10, 10 years from now, it's going to be very different. Yeah. So that kind of change is already happening. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I, I think I like to go back to this idea of uh, what Charles Darwin uh, implied, right? When he wrote his book, Origin of the Species, he never said survival of the fittest until his fifth edition, which was adopted from somebody else, uh, a social scientist who was trying to impose his ideas upon Darwin's. But what Charles Darwin essentially meant and said was survival of the compassionate, hmm. survival of the most compassionate. The species that has the highest number of compassionate individuals is the most likely to survive. 
And I think as we realize that in the middle of all this chaos of AI and job losses that come with it and new job functions that are going to be created in the middle of our aging population, in the middle of workplaces where people are jumping from one company to other without any uh, uh, loyalty to their existing company. In the middle of all of this chaos, I think somewhere at some place we begin to realize that we can look inward and we can find a balance and that we will go towards that harmony, prioritize that harmony and balance above anything else uh, that can come out, come to us as a material gain. And as that shift happens, and I think that's already begun to happen in the more affluent uh, environments, but it will probably trickle down to other places as well. And as soon as people start realizing this as a business uh, opportunity, uh, to be more successful in, in the business level and the financial level, I think the entire structure will shift. It'll be a very quick run um, in the majority at that point. Right now, it's the uphill. You're pushing the boulder up the hill. Once we get to the top, then it's going to be easy going down. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I think we're seeing that already in companies when we go in and talk about emotional intelligence and management and leadership skills, all of those things are evolving. Um, and I make that sound like it's a new thing and it really isn't because when you go back to age old companies where, you know, or the smaller businesses where the owner of the company or the senior management know that a lot of what they want to put out there depends on lower employees supporting them and wanting to work for them and being happy because happy employees are much better at customer service, for example. So finding ways to, uh, you know, see that and as they see that and employees gravitate towards that, then that's going to change the way HR works because they're going to be promoting these cultures more mm -hmm. than just how much money you're going to make, which is really becoming less and less important at least in some of the circles that I, I talk to. Um, so there's hope for 10 years from now. Well, there is hope. Hope is a beautiful thing. Perhaps the most beautiful of all things to quote from Shawshank Redemption, right? So yeah, I, I think uh, we are in a good place. There's people like you and me and a whole ton of others who are thinking about this in the longer run, the bigger perspective. So mm -hmm. it, we are in a good place. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been following your work for a little while now, and it really feels good to see how things are changing out there and, and what our options are. Thank you, Janet. Again, it's, it's really a pleasure, always talking to you. Uh, and uh, look forward to talking more offline about uh, all the good things. Thank you. And why don't you tell people how they can find out a little bit more about you um, and in particular, how they can learn about Compassion Leaders. So the name of the website is CompassionLeaders.com. It's one word, uh, CompassionLeaders.com. Uh, if they want to reach me directly, uh, I love conversations. So my, num my email is Emmanuel, I-M-M-A-N-U-A-L, at... Uh, compassionleaders.com. And uh, so one quick thing, if I can use this platform to share, 
uh, is I'm working on a book on workplace compassion where I'm collecting stories of compassion, different manifestations of compassion. And uh, I would love to encourage people to share their voices because this is, uh, this is a collective effort of different voices from different people across the globe coming together to narrate a vital message for our generation. So mm -hmm. if anyone's interested in sharing their personal story, I would love for them to contact me. Wonderful, wonderful. And I'll make sure to note that in the blog post too when this goes live. Thank you, Janet. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much for listening to Mindful Social. As always, if there's something that you loved about the show or didn't like about the show, please let me know in the comments. Send me an email at Janet at JanetFouts.com or reach out to me on Twitter at jfouts. And if you know someone who would be a great guest on the show, I'd love to hear about it. Please do share the show with your friends if you enjoyed it. The more, the merrier. Thank you.